Just before we start, we all know that there's a problem in academia with people not getting paid for the work they're doing, particularly younger scholars. We at the project want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So we need your help to do that. If you can afford to donate £1 a month to support this project and keep it free forever, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash projectrs and sign up there. If you want to make a one-off donation, you can do that too through our PayPal button on the homepage. But together we can help to change the culture of exploitation in academia. That's patreon.com backslash projectrs. Now here's the episode. Listeners, 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 it's another Monday, which means it's religious studies project time. Woo! Yeah! Um, I'm Christopher Carter. Make it more like an American show. Let's, you know, you go, hey, Chris, how are you doing, Chris? I don't know, D. Yeah! No, this doesn't work. We're, you know... We're too British for this. Yeah, this hasn't really worked well. So this is one of the few times that I would self-identify as British in that context. I'm Irish, damn it. (laughs) Anyway, I'm Christopher Carter. He is David Robertson. We are the Religious Studies Project. And what what are people tuning in for this week, David? They are tuning in for an interview with Dr. Margarita Simon Guillory on African American spiritual churches. And this is recorded for us by Dan Gorman. So although we're British, we're taking a trip across the pond for our first American interview of the season. So enjoy, y'all. Professor Margarita Guillory, thank you for joining us today. No problem. Thank you for inviting me. Today we're going to be talking about your new book on African-American spiritual churches in New Orleans. Although I've been reading your book proposal, I understand the final title has changed. Yes, it's instead of more than conjurers being the primary title, it's now the secondary title. So it's spiritual and social transformation in African-American spiritual churches more than conjurers. So perhaps the reverse order of what you wanted originally. (laughs) Yes, but for marketing purposes, more than conjurers sort of took second place. They really believe that they can market the book better with the spiritual churches being in the primary title. So just people have some brief background. What is, is this what you wrote your dissertation about? So my dissertation was actually based upon ethnographic research pulled from spiritual churches in, in New Orleans. However, the dissertation was a little bit more theoretical in that it focused on the ways in which spiritualists in New Orleans utilize rituals and altars, personal and public altars, to articulate a complex form of of subjectivity that I sort of coined in the dissertation called the dynamical self. The dissertation was a little bit more theoretical. I was able to use the dissertation to write a peer review article and two edited volume essays. However, it was a little narrow for the publisher's taste. So I sort of had to rework. I wrote an entire new book, basically. I see. So when you <laughs> mentioned the idea of the dynamical self, I mean, mm-hmm. you, it brings to mind sort of the sort of the grandiose theatrical aspect of a religious worship. I mean, you could say there's a dynamic self in many religions, mm-hmm. but what's what's unique about the way that people express their religious beliefs mm-hmm. in these churches? Well, I would say the way in which I sort of dynamic is sort of this sort of fluidity. But in a dissertation, I sort of expand upon this sort of fluid conception of the dynamic, and it's called the dynamical self. But the dynamical self is this identity form that 
is sort of the simultaneous expression of both a public collective identity that's based upon association with shared qualities with the group, but it's also sort of the construction of a personal identity form that's based upon one's uniqueness. And this is a theory that I didn't go into this community or these communities with this theory. This theory was really formulated based upon the data that I collected from the communities. So it's totally the reverse. I went in with no sort of expectation of what I would actually find. I just thought that the communities were really, really interesting. The data yielded the theory. So a data-derived argument rather than a data-driven argument. Exactly. Exactly. Now, you came to religious studies as sort of a second career in some ways. You were a, you were a high school science teacher originally. Yes. So how did your first background in natural science, how did that inform how you approached the study of religion? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and it's a question that I'm asked quite frequently when people find out that I have a bachelor's in chemistry. Um, I have a profound love for physical sciences, specifically chemistry. Chemistry has allowed me to... It has armed me and equipped me with a particular interpretive lens. Um, the dynamical self, even though it's derived upon the data that I sort of retrieved from these spiritual churches in New Orleans, it's sort of really based upon this equilibrium state that sort of occurs when you look at certain chemical reactions. So the theory, while based on the data that I retrieved from these churches, the way in which I sort of nuanced it was based upon like chemical formulations of just basic equations, something that you learn in like general chemistry. It just gives me a unique lens to which to view religion. Does that answer your question? I think Somewhat? so. I think I'm curious then, do you identify as a humanist or do you, <laughs> or do you identify as a social scientist? I, I don't like to be placed in a box. I think I am a unique scholar in that way, that I still sort of follow some of the trends that are going on in general chemistry. I have a great relationship with a couple of chemists even on our campus, I do use sociological and anthropological, sociological approaches to the study of religion. And I do consider myself a humanist. So in that way, I think I'm sort of like a quilt, which can be sort of problematic for some people, um, but it works for me. So I don't, and this is why I can have these really collaborative interdisciplinary projects with people across disciplines and not feel uncomfortable because I feel like a piece of me as a scholar is vetted in these multiple disciplines. Which brings me back to your book. When the publisher uh, releases <laughs> it in a few weeks, what, well, not genre, we know it's a nonfiction right, monograph, right, right. but the little stamp on the top cover right. that says what genre it is, right, or what right, topic, right. how is it being sold? Is it history? Is it religion? Yes. A very good question. It's, it has multiple genres. Um, because I'm, because the book I wrote, which, like I said, the data, a lot of the data that I collected um, while doing research for the dissertation will be used, but the approach is differently, is different than the dissertation. The book basically examines the sociopolitical activities and the spiritual sort of therapeutic elements that are found in the spiritual churches in a, in a coalescing sort of way. And so in that way, because the book is political, you're looking at the political and social activism of these churches. And because it looks at sort of the therapeutic function of these churches, the sort of taglines will be history because I start with the, the first church 
um, in the 1920s. And I take the book by the end of the book, the chapter on it. I have a chapter on post-Katrina spiritual churches. So it's historical, but it's also being publicized as religion and society. Um, so you see that sort of bend where the sociology is also coming in. So they have marketed this in a variety of fields. Interestingly, they've even promoted it in what we would call like Africana religions. So if you sort of do a Google search with my name under voodoo or hoodoo, that my book actually will pop up. So they really cast a really wide net when publicizing the book. So I suppose the next question is, what is a spiritual church? Aren't all churches spiritual? Spiritual churches, the, the African-American spiritual churches um, that, that I research are a blended religious group. And I like that term blendedness. And what they've done, they have conjoined all of the, the various elements from institutionalized religions. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. And they've created their own unique religion, specifically the spiritual churches in New Orleans. They've conjoined Protestant traditions with the focus on Pentecostalism. They pull from their worship style. Catholicism is a major bedrock in spiritual churches in New Orleans just because Catholic religion, Catholicism is the predominant, is still today the predominant religion that's that's practiced in New Orleans in particular and Louisiana in general. They also incorporate American spiritualism, the ability to communicate with the dead that was birthed in Western New York, in Highsville, New York. They also sort of conjoin and mix into their faith hoodoo and voodoo. And this this notion of voodoo is derived directly from Haitian voodoo. So and when you look at sort of their belief system and their ritual practices, you can see a little of all of these religions. So when we talk about voodoo and hoodoo, which was sort of an older white term used to describe it in some mm-hmm. cases, I'm thinking of sort of 1920s white attempts to understand black religion. Right. But voodoo itself is a sort of a combinative thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got influences of Islam, Native American and Caribbean mm-hmm. religions, mm-hmm. Christianity. Mm-hmm. So, and then of course, there's a longstanding debate in the study of African-American religion well, are these religions more, quote unquote, African or are they more American? Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? I would say if we just specifically look at the system of voodoo, and I mean V-O-O-D-O-O, I would totally say that that is a, an American religion and that it is a blended religion that is primarily based upon, even though you have these other elements like Christianity, but it's primarily based upon Haitian voodoo, V-O-D-O-U, that Haitian immigrants who immigrated very early to New Orleans after the Haitian Revolution, a large population of Haitians sort of immigrated to New Orleans and they took with them the religion. So even though you have these other elements in Louisianian voodoo, the backbone of that religion is, is Haitian. Haitian voodoo. And, and of course, we know that Haitian voodoo, the OU, uh, was derived from this combination of Catholicism, but it comes directly from Benin. In, in West Africa. Exactly, Voodoo. So in that way, you know, once sort of the voodoo sort of lands in New Orleans in the southeast, yes, it becomes sort of this syncretic, and that's not the term that I like to use, but this sort of blended type of religious tradition. So let's walk through the genealogy from the top then, beginning in Benin in West Africa. Mm -hmm. So this would be what kind of religions there? 
Are we talking about Islam? Are we talking about traditional spiritual beliefs? So this would be an indigenous. So Benin Vudan is an indigenous religion. It is a combination of, and and that word might be seen as a little, may may be sort of um, interpreted as a little charge, but it is a combination of sort of the traditional religions that are being practiced in Benin. But of course, the scholarly term for it becomes Vudan. I see. So then... When slaves are brought to Haiti, mm-hmm. those religion, those indigenous religions are brought there. Yes. And then they encounter Spanish and French Catholicism. Exactly. Depending which side of the island they're on. Yes. And then that finally goes to America where you have the collisions you're describing. Right. It's particularly in New Orleans. So how big of a population are we talking about? That's hard for me to say, like, you know, quantitatively. Like Hundreds, thousands? That's hard for me to say quantitatively, like just off the cuff, but I could definitely have these sort of conversations um, qualitatively. But that's that's sort of tough to derive. We you can we can sort of search and crunch the numbers, but those numbers will be sort of hard to to derive. So let, let's talk about some of the churches you yourself studied and were they mm-hmm. packed to the gills on a Sunday? What's interesting, post Katrina, the churches were packed. You had 50 plus churches. I mean, pre-Katrina, post-Katrina, 50 plus churches dwindled down to two churches in New Orleans. Is that Um, because of population displacement? That's part of the problem. So part of the problem will be population displacement. About 70% of the 50 plus churches that were in New Orleans or operating in New Orleans pre-Katrina were located in the Ninth Ward. Um, So they were destroyed. And the last chapter of my book sort of talks about that, the ways in which not only did they, not only were some of them structurally destroyed, but because of some very deliberate economical and political and structural changes that occurred in post-Katrina New Orleans, they were sort of the lands in which these churches, even if they, they were in a position where they could have you know, restored the church, they were taken and they were converted to green spaces. So was that eminent domain? Eminent domain. Many of the churches, I I calculate about 40% of the churches that were located in post-Katrina Ninth Ward were sort of taken back by the city via eminent domain. So there there are multiple factors sort of feeding into why these churches have dwindled down to two. Has gentrification also occurred? In the... Higher elevated levels of, of Ninth War, gentrification is now occurring. They sort of call this area Holy Cross. They built a school. They have a private developer that's coming in. So that, and, and I'm saying higher elevation, but it's still below sea level, but it's higher than, than, than the dominant part of the Ninth Ward. It's being gentrified. So they're pushing out the poorer, mostly well, African American. Well, residents. they never let them back. Really. I see. Because they never built in in the ninth war for people who did choose to come back. They had no businesses, no stores. They I think within the last two years they might have a health clinic. So the infrastructure wasn't rebuilt for people to come back. So we can argue was this intentional? Was this you know we're going to let the ninth war return to to nature so it can sort of serve as the buffer or the retention land? So. You know, other parts of of Louisiana, um, of New Orleans won't flood. We have another major storm and we have the breaching of the levees. So it becomes very, and I try to unpack that in the chapter five of my book, the ways in which the changing landscape around spiritual churches 
we can tell a lot. If you look at the changing landscape of spiritual churches, it tells us a lot about other landscapes and shifting landscapes in New Orleans, demographic landscapes, social landscapes, economic landscapes, political landscapes. If you just focus on the spiritual churches, we can see all of these sort of dynamics that are going on post-Katrina. So I'm assuming the floodwaters destroyed substantial amounts of material culture, archives. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So what's left? I mean, were you working in people's attics? Were you working so, in No, I actually, what's, what's interesting is, is when I first went to New Orleans, was in 2000, maybe 10. And the, many of the churches were still standing. They were in horrible condition, but they were still filled with all the material culture covered in all sort of mold and mold and everything else. And of course, I was in those spaces. <laughs> so some of the spiritual leaders who were really respected leaders in the city, Bishop Jackson, Bishop Stokes, from he, he came from um, Detroit to give me a tour. So before they began to actually tear these structures down, like these structures are no longer standing in New Orleans in 2017. Mm -hmm. But I had the fortune to go while, was and still there. while they were still there. Not only was I able to see what was in the inside, I took photos of the inside. I took photos of the outside. I do plan on like publishing a, a book of photos of like the before and after. So people can actually see what is happening in, in New Orleans still today. But spiritualists tend to be quite private. How did you gain this access? And this is something I've talked about in my <laughs> right. past interviews. Right. You know, Douglas Brooks studying, you know, the only way to study some Hindu rituals is to gain the trust, in, you know, and to, right. to be a part of the community. Right. Or Candy Gunther Brown, who I spoke to, you know, watching evangelical yoga, but not participating. Right. How did you get access to these communities? Right. Well, actually, the one of the first scholars to write a comprehensive, to publish a, compre a comprehensive work on, on spiritual churches of New Orleans is Claude Jacobs. He's now retired. He was at the University of Michigan. Him and my my advisor, who was at the time my advisor, Dr. Anthony Penn, who, who's also done some work on spiritual churches, they basically, he went to Dr. Jacobs and told him, I have a student who's interested and in, in the spiritual churches. And I was introduced to Archbishop William Stokes, who is now passed on, as the spiritualists say, to the other side. And it was through him because he had been a part of the spiritual churches. So he came to Houston. We flew him to Houston. And him and I basically spent like two weeks together in Houston, just getting to know one another. I took him to different archives. I interviewed him. And so basically... It was through him, but we had to sort of, he had to, those two weeks, he had to decide when in those two weeks, whether he was going to trust me and actually introduce me and open the door or not. So I guess at the end of the two weeks, considering that I've published like 80% yeah. of my scholarships is on spiritual churches, I must have gained his trust. And after that, because he was coming from Detroit, he, he said, you know, he would be, he would be really excited about you know, introducing me to people in New Orleans. And so I won a Ford um, dissertation fellowship and I was able to pay for his travel. And we spent a summer. This is how I actually first started. Uh, we spent a summer in New Orleans together and it was uh, remarkable. And, and generating trust. Generating trust. And because... That you're not stealing their exactly. stories. Exactly. And because he did not, because he had been a part of the spiritual churches for, by that time, over five decades, people trusted him and they knew that he wouldn't just bring 
you know, anyone into the community that, that wasn't going to sort of take their religion and do something with it in a, in a really fundamental positive way. And that's the fun, the line between being curious and then between past scholars who basically were stealing. Exactly. And I've invested a lot of time. So this was like the groundwork. I wasn't even really collecting data at this point. I was just building relationships. So you, you asked me, how did I get in? Because they are very secretive. This is why there hasn't been a lot of scholarship surrounding spiritual churches, because some people have mishandled what they've given the scholar. And so I had to spend quite a bit of time building relationships. But once I built those relationships, it was like the floodgates opened. They were so excited about sharing their faith um, with me. Professor Guillory, we're almost out of time, but I'd like to ask briefly, several of the early chapters in your book focus mm-hmm. on female leaders yes. in the church, women like Mother Leafy Anderson. Yes. Could you just speak briefly about female leadership in these I can. churches? I can't. I This is why I like the book that I've published instead of the dissertation turning it into a book. This book really highlights the social, the political savviness, the entrepreneurial spirit of women in New Orleans, specifically from the 1920s, early 1920s through the 1940s. These were women, women like Mother Leafy Anderson, uh, Mother Catherine Seal. These are women who not only own, not only purchase property, but they built structures from the ground up. For instance, Mother Leafy Anderson, she built her church from the ground up, property that she purchased. And the person who actually, the organization that actually financed the building of her very lovely church for the 1920s was the Italian Homestead Association. If you go and look at the history of the Italian Homestead Association in New Orleans, they were not freely giving money money to African-Americans to build businesses and structures. That wasn't like their their social function. They were committed to sort of Italians who, and Sicilians in particular, who were coming into New Orleans actually utilizing them as a pipeline to build and then to invest in these communities. So it was really interesting that she was able to get them to finance. And have a completely different religion. Well, but what's interesting is that her church, and I talk about this a bit in the book, was about 30% Sicilian. Well, that's interesting. Very interesting. Which means the church was racially integrated in the 1920s. It was. and And also Mother Catherine Seals, the manger, was about 25 to 35. We, we can't get our our, our our hands wrapped around the exact number, but hers was also an integrated religious compound. And during her time, you know, there was there, there were segregation laws about cohabitation. And not only that, you had lynching. Exactly, exactly. And so these women, and this is what I love about the book. The book sort of highlights sort of the courageous activities and they were really savvy when it came to business too. They had an entrepreneurial sort of model of earning money using the religion in a way that was just, they were ahead of their times. They were like, I guess we would call them like our large mega churches today. Sure. They were like the mega churches of the 1920s. So the, the book really highlights sort of the social activism and the ways in which these women also met the spiritual um, needs of individuals, both black and white, which is amazing. The book sort of talks about that, that they were, yes, 
you know, they wanted to be an anchor for the black community, but they also served sort of the white population who was sort of seen as who were being marginalized by class and by ethnicity. They also served those populations as well. So just to wrap up, I'll say that reminds me in some ways of, it's a quite old book, but Arthur Fawcett's Black Gods of the Metropolis. (laughs) So for those of our listeners who aren't familiar, Arthur Fawcett, an African-American scholar, wrote this book in the 1940s about the urban religions, mostly in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And these were like your spiritual churches. These are small groups, many of them led by women, and they're exercising creativity in ways that white society doesn't want to allow them. Mm -hmm. So... And Fawcett also discusses the idea of, you know, foreign religions being translated in America. So clearly, these questions are still viable and thought-provoking 70 years later. Yes. Perfect ending. <laughs> so, and I'll, I will ask, what's, what's the next project? Oh, the next project, African American Religion in the Digital Age. So I am, while, I, while I'm still publishing essays and peer-reviewed articles on spiritual churches, I'm sort of moving in the direction of digital religion. Specifically, I'm looking at the ways in which people of African descent are utilizing technological advances to express multiple forms of religion. So I'm working on a chapter now on Black humanism and Black atheism and the way in which it's promoted among generation, I mean, among millennials using social media platforms. Um, platforms. Be careful, you'll be getting into transhumanism next. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Guillory, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dan. Excellent to hear another interview there from Dan. We're going to have another uh, American interviewer next week, Um, although, you know, gradually becoming more and more British by the day. Yeah, yeah, we've got him, I think. Yeah, um, he was talking about um, how much better our bread is <laughs> god almighty anybody who lives in uh, mainland europe's just like <laughs> their mouth hanging open in disbelief exactly i'm going to be hearing from tommy coleman next week and he's been speaking with Ingela Vissuri on autism religion and imagination so that's quite an interesting topic very interesting yeah always great to have tommy's interviews if you don't know tommy is uh, one of the driving forces behind the rsp and really does a lot of the work on a week-to-week basis so when he gets time to do an interview as well it's it's always a treat but he also brings that psychological cognitive perspective that isn't Chris or I's speciality. So it's always great to have his contributions. Yeah. And um, also over the past few weeks, you should have been experiencing a, a bit of a change in the Ops Digest. Jana Shuley uh, um, at Bergen had been um, doing the Ops Digest for about three years and, and was a stalwart member of the team and um, highly dependable. But due to um, finishing up PhD and other commitments and having served in the role for such a long time um she stepped down in september and i had been filling in mostly when i remembered <laughs> to do it um between times um but um ella buck of the uh, lewis and clark college in portland oregon has uh, taken over recently you might have heard ella doing an interview um back at the end of 2017 there with steve jacobs and theo wildcraft um so we're delighted to welcome her to the team some fresh blood yes indeed and great to be getting some new american colleagues on board we 
used to have a lot of a lot of American tributaries, and then Tommy moved over. Brad became suddenly extremely important in Nasser, you know, and Dusty and, and Dave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. busy. Yeah. But um, you know, it, it, to to go back to Yana for a second, this is a good reason why you might want to think about contributing to our Patreon page because all of these people are giving up their time. Yana did it week in, week out for about two and a half, three years, you know, for your benefit. So if you can spare one pound, one dollar a week, you know, not even half the price of one cup of coffee, then you would be doing an enormous amount to support the work that they do. Exactly. So thanks also to our entire team who you will hear um, in our in our play out that comes after uh, one of the other of us says, thanks. Thanks for listening. That's the one. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett, and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or by donating at patreon.com backslash project rs and you can find us on facebook twitter google plus youtube itunes and other portals